The North American Society for Oceanic History was created by maritime scholars who met in 1971 at the University of Maine. They recognized that in North America there was no forum for maritime history or a society devoted to the study and promotion of maritime history. The aim of the original group of organizers was to create a diverse organization based initially on Canadian and American membership, which would gain the interest of others. Now there are members worldwide. And it is this diversity of membership that continues to make NASO a truly unique organization. 2020 marked the first year in recent memory that NASO was unable to meet, and therefore we bring historians, archaeologists, and students who are scheduled to present. Welcome to the North American Society for Oceanic History video podcast. I'm your host, Sal Mercagliano. The goal of the NASO podcast is to bring you some of the best historians, professionals, and up-and-comers in the field of maritime history. Today, we're heading to the Gulf Coast, specifically Alabama, and being joined by Dr. John Brighton. John is the chair of the Department of Anthropology at the University of West Florida. Dr. Brighton will be discussing a, a topic, elemental mercury recovered from the 19, 1559 Luna settlement and shipwrecks. Welcome, John, to the NASO video and podcast. Hi, thanks for bringing me on. I just kind of want to clarify one thing. Uh, sure, we're really ahead. talking about Pensacola. I just happen to be in Alabama today for this podcast, but um, we're going to give it, give the rightful place in Pensacola, Florida is what we're really talking about today. Well, you're exactly right, because I was going to come back to that, because uh, it's really great to have you on this podcast, because the whole reason we're doing this is because of the cancellation of our conference that was scheduled to be down in Pensacola, Florida hosted by University of Western Florida, our, our, pre, our current president of NASO, Dr. Amy Mitchell-Cook. She's the chair of the history department there. You're the chair of, of the anthropology department. And I am not gonna lie when I tell you, we had an entire Friday day, the very first day of the conference was kind of set aside to talk about this, uh, this site you're going to talk about in, in a whole series of archeology, span anthropology, and, and maritime history from that site. So it's very, very uh, appropriate we have you on to kind of set the tone for this. So I was wondering if you can set some context for us. So obviously we're going to talk all about this, this uh, landscape of what, the Tristan de Luna settlement and some of the shipwrecks down there. So I was wondering if you give us the context of the, and the background of that, of that site. So um, the Spanish, of course, have been in Mexico prior to 1559 and discovered the riches of the New World and so there was fear that um, other European countries, particularly the French, might come into the same area and set up a port where they could uh, attack Spanish ships. And so to protect their own interests, they um, wanted another um, port, um, an establishment where they, they could help protect their, uh, basically all these ships that would be going back and forth between the New World and Spain. And so, Pensacola um, was known to them because it had been visited earlier by earlier Spanish expeditions. And so it was known to have a deep harbor and, and it was said to be sheltered and be protected from all storms. And so uh, Don Tristan de Luna Iariano was put in charge of this. And so this was royally funded. It would be the, the biggest colonization attempt and um, Eventually, you know, it was going to include 1,500 colonists. It involved 12 ships. Um, it was going to be a two-part thing. There was going to be the colony would be established at Pensacola, and then there would be a colony on the east coast, or east coast of uh, the United States, um, Santa Elena, and then they would be connected in by an overland road. So very ambitious at the time. 
And so supplies were gathered from Mexico, supplies were brought over on ships from Spain. Eventually all these things, horses, 200 horses, were all loaded on these ships. And then uh, the, the Spanish sailed from Veracruz, Mexico. The voyage actually took about seven weeks. Um, they, then they uh, had trouble with the horses. The horses were sick and dying. They overshot Pensacola Bay, probably went about as far as St. Mark's, Florida, came back towards where Mobile is today, offloaded the horses, brought them overland, and then came into um, Pensacola Bay. So um, they chose a land site, which for years eluded us, although we now know where the land site is, and we actually have an archaeological project going on there since 2016 as well. And so uh, five weeks after they landed, um, there was a hurricane. And uh, from Luna's description, it sounded like it was a category five storm. And the storm blew from all directions for 24 hours. And at the end of it, uh, the Spanish had lost seven of the ships that were in the bay at the time. So six of them really um, sank. Uh, more so they grounded in shallow areas where the hurricane pushed them. And then one was actually blown up on land and that one was destroyed. So, you know, there's a lot of history behind all this, but uh, the first shipwreck um, was found in 1992, and it was found by Dr. Roger Smith. He was Florida State underwater archeologist. And a lot of people, you know, knew Roger. Unfortunately, Roger uh, passed away this uh, past February. But uh, Roger invited me to come to the project in 1994. And so at that point, I worked for the Florida Bureau of Archaeological Research and I, my job was to act as the conservator for the project to take care of all the artifacts that we would recover. And then I was also a member of the diving team, um, which was pretty small back then. There were really uh, four, four of us in Pensacola and then Roger would come from Tallahassee. But uh, the first Emanuel Point shipwreck, then we associated with the fleet of, of Luna. And we worked on that uh, from the time of its discovery in 92 all the way up to 1998. So let me put some more context here for this. Uh, so this settlement that's setting up, so this is predating, I mean, early Spanish settlements in North America. So this is predating St. Augustine. This is a very early, obviously, settlement going into what is today the modern day United States. Right. It, 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 is, it was the largest um, settlement attempt at the time, uh, the, the first one to be royally funded. Um, St. Augustine was founded in 1565, and this is 1559. The colony only lasted for two years um, for a number of reasons. One, because the hurricane uh, gave them such a disadvantage to begin with. The Spanish had been advised that uh, their food supplies would be safer if they left them on board the ships. So even though they'd been in Pensacola for about five weeks, most of the supplies were still on board the ships anchored nearby where the settlement was just being built. And so that was a devastating loss to lose all that. Tristan de Luna wasn't that effective of a leader. Um, and, and so it floundered from the get-go. He sent um, quite a few of his um, um, military, because there were colonists and then he had a military force as well. And so they went up into uh, Alabama, all the way up to North Georgia, really where the mountains are, um, looking for Kusa, 
um, looking to be able to trade with the Native Americans to, to bring back food to these colonists. And then eventually, um, one of the ships that survived the storm though was sent back to Mexico, reported on the disaster, and then over a period of two years, relief ships were sent that eventually picked out the colonists, and then it was all completely abandoned in 1561. So the, the, the wrecks and the settlement themselves, with the geography of Pensacola, large bay type area it is, these are all inside the bay area, or are they outside? No, they're well in the bay. In fact, they're nine miles from Pensacola Pass uh, to go out to the Gulf of Mexico. That was one of the reasons why the Spanish had chosen this area, because the bay is so large and you can travel way up there. Ultimately, they picked a high point of land overlooking uh, this particular part of the bay. There was access to fresh water. And um, so the, the site location, you know, was really good. It makes a lot of sense, you know, once you really know where it is. And then we, you know, had surmised that the ships could have been blown all over the bay because of the storm. So the first one was found in 1992. University of West Florida found the second one in 2006. And then we found the third one in 2016. So we found three of them. And then also in 2016, the, the land, the actual settlement site was found. So it's kind of a perfect research world because we, we have both the ships and the land site. We can compare the artifacts and really hope to tell a more complete story of what the colony was actually like. What kind of evidence are you getting from, and, and material culture wise, are you getting from, uh, let's say, the, the land site first, and then we can talk about the, uh, uh, the, the ships themselves. What are we learning about these, these early colonists that came in that uh, makes them unique? Well, you know, these were not rich people. These were people that were really wanting to start, a, a, you know, life in a new place, you know, and ultimately, you know, they hoped to find their own riches this way. And so what we find are, we find remnants of some of the food, remnants of some of the clothing things um, on the land site, you know, brass pins, uh, lots of olive jar fragments. Um, even uh, some items associated with uh, Aztecs, because we know that there were uh, Aztec warriors have been recruited for this mission as well. And so there, there's some Aztec pottery and um, some other items. We found some obsidian um, on both the land and both on the shipwrecks to tie that connection in. Um, lot, you know, on the land side, uh, uh, copper crossbow points, uh, iron fasteners survive, um, a few fragments uh, probably from some of the building structures that show up as stains in the soil. Um, as you'd mentioned earlier, we had intended to do a whole day of presentation. And so, um, you know, Dr. John Worth in particular was going to talk about the work on the land site, as well as a, a number of our graduate students, you know, who are working with various aspects from that. Um, my, you know, association is, I've been fortunate enough, I've been able to work on all three of the shipwrecks that have been found and, you know, really become familiar with all the artifacts found on those shipwrecks as well. And so, you know, we can make good comparisons between those. When we look, well, when, let's shift on over to the ships then and talk about those a little bit. Uh, what, what type of ships are we talking about? What, how are they used as, as a base of operation? You're talking about the food being stored on board. So we assume for, for the time, fairly large vessels to be able to sustain this kind of base of operation until they can be established ashore 
So what, what kind of material culture are you getting from the ships themselves? Well, for the, the ships are, the three that we've found so far, they're all located in shallow water. The first two are in uh, just 12 feet of water. The third one kind of surprised us because it's actually in, uh, only in seven feet of water. But what we have are the bottom parts of the ship that were covered by the ballast. And the stone ballast protected that. And then all three ships are relatively close to the outlet of a bayou, which carried silts and sediments. It, it covered up these parts that survived them that in an anaerobic environment. And so we had incredible organic preservation. But um, you know, we have everything really that was below the water line where that ballast area was. And then on, for instance, in the case of the second one we found, we call it Emmanuel Point 2. In that one, we thought we'd found a third ship because off the stern uh, of that vessel, we, we found much more articulated uh, ship timbers. But it turned out that's actually probably part of the port side of the ship that was torn off when the ship pounded up and down on the sandbar during the hurricane and then landed behind the ship. So that one, we have more of the vessel, you know, which is really going to help us, you know, say what they look like. We know the names of all the ships. Uh, we have some of the payrolls for the ships. And so we get a pretty good idea of it, but there's galleons and what the Spanish called a now, and then uh, a fregata or a frigate. Um, there was uh, a caravel, but the caravel survived the storm. So archaeologists haven't really had a chance to work on a caravel. We'd love to, but that one we won't find. But uh, the first two ships, Emmanuel Point 1 and Emmanuel Point 2, are both very large ships for the time, 400 to 500 tons, uh, you know, well over 100 feet on deck. And so they're, they're sizable vessels in, you know, in the range of you know, what we would call a galleon. Is that fairly typical, the size vessels you're seeing, or are these uh, unusual compared to what the Spanish were using at the time uh, in, along the Gulf of Mexico coast and in their conquest there of the Caribbean area? No, I think, you know, these are typical of what we would expect to find, but from this time period, you know, uh, that's one of the reasons why this is so important. There, we don't have ship plans laid out showing exactly how they were built. And, uh, you know, th this we're adding to that knowledge base of, you know, the ships from this time period that have been found. Of, uh, you know, what are the scantlings, the dimensions, the outer hull planking, um, how was the mast step uh, built and designed, the pump wells on the ship. And so all these things, you know, we're documenting and we can add to that to this really, uh, you know, it's a small collection worldwide of ships from this time period. And uh, so, you know, the, the ships are, you know, all a little different. We don't know much about Emmanuel Point 3, the one that was most recently discovered. That one, we've only started the excavation out there. We only have a few square meters uncovered, but, you know, we're again seeing intact hull remains. We don't know whether it's one of the larger ships or one of the smaller ships at this point yet. It, it does appear to be one that was built in the old world. It, it's, it's, it's a European type white oak. All three ships are actually built out of European white oak. We know that. Um, this, you know, the work's going to continue long after, you know, I've left uh, the University of West Florida. And, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, proving to be, you know, beneficial research, you know, for 
you know, all the faculty as well as, you know, graduate students. And we're also able to engage undergraduate students too, and they take on projects as well. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that process. I think it's a really amazing process. The idea that, you know, I, I, I don't know how far this is from the university, but it's fairly close. I mean, most, you know, off, you know, underwater archaeology sites, you have to travel quite a long distance to get there. This sounds like it's right across the bay from you guys. So that sounds like it's really convenient, number one. But number two is, is what's the mechanism behind this? I, I mean, how do you pull in, you know, both the departments in your university? And, and what kind of scopes of work are you giving students, grad students, faculty members uh, um, for this? Well, it takes a lot of people to do all this. And so we've, we've really worked out a good plan. And so um, we have at the University of West Florida, we call it the Division of Anthropology and Archaeology. So it includes the Department of Anthropology, which is where the academic side is, to, where we offer the programs for the students, undergraduates and graduate students as well. We have a MA in Historical Archaeology, which is kind of unique. So students can really focus in on archaeology as well. And then we have the Archaeology Institute on campus. It's properly called the Margaret J. Smith Archaeology Institute, which we use to do grants and contracts and things like that. And we also have FPAN, which is headquartered in Pensacola, the Florida Public Archaeology Network. And we work with um, you know, those fine folks as well. And then we also have what's known as Marine Services, which serves the entire university, but it's where we keep our boats and we have a dive locker, we have dive safety officer, we have boat mechanics. So we can ensure the safety of everyone that's working on the projects, you know, on the underwater sites as well. So we also work with other departments. Um, right now, I'm doing collaborative research with biology because we're we're looking at um, ancient DNA, trying to extract, isolate DNA from some of the, it, well, on the Emmanuel Point ships, we had the first physical evidence for chickens in the New World, the actual chicken bones. And so that's been an interesting topic about when chickens cross the Atlantic to get to the New World. But we have, we have a cat, which I'm trying to isolate DNA from, from a cat, which, you know, that's the type of things that I am really interested. You know, earliest pig and the earliest actual rats uh, and all these type things. So, you know, I work with the biology folks. Uh, we've worked with folks in chemistry, um, analyzing, trying to identify some of the resins that we found on board the ship, uh, do neutron activation analysis. And of course, we've had a long relationship with history on campus. Um, you know, that are helping us, you know, with documentary research. And, and so they're actively engaged in this as well. And so it's worked out great for, for that. And, you know, we have other collaborations where we've brought in students from other universities to come and take part in the field schools. And uh, those are always welcome to bring new faces in. And uh, so, yeah, it's multidisciplinary for sure. Well, that cross-disciplinary sounds fantastic. I mean, I always love programs like that, and I think it's such great exposure for students to get that, too, to, to be able to see how different areas work together, complement each other, and at the same time support each other, which I, I think it sounds like your program is, is doing great. I want to go back to one thing you mentioned, because I, 
I, I didn't hear you talk about this yet. Was there any evidence of Native American culture and the interaction between the settlements and it? Were, was this an area that had already been devoid of Native Americans because of disease? Or was there any indication of interaction between these Spanish settlers and Native Americans? There is. There's, there's some Native American components that have been identified on the settlement site, but those may actually predate and postdate the actual colonization site. Um, as it turned out, the, the really the Native Americans weren't uh, in great numbers on the coast near Pensacola. Um, larger numbers were more so up in Alabama. But uh, John Worth uh, from the documents has found then you know specific encounters where some of the Luna uh, soldiers then had traveled north, uh, you know, looking to do this, but um, because of uh, you know Ponce de Leon and and uh, uh, some of the earlier ones, uh, the Native Americans were uh, not that welcoming. And so there's actually, you know, evidence for uh, some skirmishes that they had uh, against the Spanish. And so I had a student uh, several years ago, uh, did a neat thesis topic. She was actually looking at European type artifacts that have been recovered from Native American sites, mostly in Alabama, some in Georgia. So it, it does, probably indicate that trade did happen and did occur. And so she looked at some of the metal artifacts using um, XRF, X-ray diffraction, uh, looking at the actual, you know, specific composition of the metals, trying to associate those with artifacts from Luna. And, you know, and found some parallels that, you know, that looked real promising that that was the case. But uh, we've seen it that way. But in the immediate Pensacola area, not that much. Yeah, I wonder how much the impact of weather and, and not being on the coast when these hurricanes come in is, is an impact for that. Uh, talking about the, the hurricane and the finding of the wrecks, obviously you said that I think there was five ships that were lost and you found three so far, if I'm correct. Seven were lost and we found three. Uh, obviously work is probably being done to locate those other wrecks and, and knowing that geography of that Gulf Coast and having seen hurricanes hit in the past, I mean, it's not unusual to see massive flooding in the coastal areas and, and ships could have been picked up and dropped almost anywhere in that area. So how much work is being done to kind of locate these uh, other wrecks or are you just focusing on the three you have right now? Well, after the first one was found in, in 92, then that one really was the primary focus. The survey sort of stopped at that point for really uh, the next six years. And we did that and then we picked up the search again then in, in 2006. And so we were lucky we got a special category uh, grant from the Florida Division of Historical Resources uh, to start the, the survey again. Um, so all three of these wrecks have been found with a magnetometer. And so the second one turned out to only be within a half mile of the first one. So the first one actually had a fairly good amount of the ballast still sticking up above the sand. And so at, at that time, magnetometers, you know, weren't quite as sensitive as they are today, but it did give, a, you know, a reading that warranted someone going in and, you know, doing a circle search underwater and then they found the ballast pile and found the ship. The, the second one, we had a, a target 
um, magnetic anomaly, it wasn't near as strong as the first one, but systematically we had a number of these targets and we would use the field school students to, you know, test these. And so um, we would pick out a number, you know, that looked promising for the day. We, that would be the goal. We'd go out there and we'd typically send two students down at a time, and usually a graduate student and undergraduate student, they would do a, a typical circle search. If nothing was immediately visible, then we take fiberglass probes and we probe in the sand. And that's exactly what happened. They did just what they were, you know, supposed to do, and then encountered ballastone, you know, just under the sand. And then I was actually on the survey boat um, where we were pulling the magnetometer, and they called and said, you know, this had happened. And I said, well, you know, probe it out, see if you can get kind of an overall length. And then they did that, and it was about 14 meters, which looked real promising. And uh, so the next day, of course, we went back to that site, and uh, we didn't have a dredge and fill permit and that, but we did some hand fanning and quickly, you know, found ballast. And then very quickly, we found some uh, olive jar pottery. And that led to the discovery of the, the second one that way. So, we worked on Emmanuel Point 2 from really 2006 to 2016. Um, we've been fortunate, we've been able to offer a field school every summer and, you know, take students to train. This is the first summer because of the pandemic, we had to cancel our field school. But as part of the field school, um, they, they may get to go out one day and they're going to work on the shipwreck and they're going to learn how to use the water induction dredge, set up grids, learn how to map underwater, learn those skills. Well, then another group of them that same day, we're gonna send them out in a smaller boat with a magnetometer or side scan sonar. We're gonna teach them remote sensing techniques. And then yet another boat, um, we may send out uh, several students with a senior grad student. They're gonna go out and target dive on some of the anomalies that we found. So we find many things that don't turn out to be Luna ships, and uh, it takes a long time. We, we did find other interesting things, of course, but in 2016, we found the third ship by that same method on a target that, you know, it looked good, but because it was only in seven feet of water, we really didn't, we thought that might be too shallow, but as it uh, turned out to be, it, uh, again, we quickly located, uh, you know, some of the things we wanted to find, um, you know, quickly, like olive jar, uh, strips of lead sheathing, um, the ballast, and then some, you know, articulated wood, and then found the third one that way. So we're going to continue to survey and uh, all during as part of field school. If we're fortunate, we get, you know, a large grant, like a special category grant from the state of Florida, then we can, we can actually work year round and, and do that as well. Well, I think you're fortunate you have the environment where you can do that and definitely uh, uh, be able to work year-round. I'm interested, too, in, in the idea of, of what do we do with this information? You know, as a graduate of the East Carolina program, you know, one of the big things that, that I do as a historian now, I don't do as much diving as I ever did, but one of the things I like to do is be able to use archaeology and anthropology in my history research, be able to use that material and, and, and incorporate it in it. What's your department and your university doing right now to take the the facts the images the uh, the archaeology the anthropology the history from these sites and put them out there in 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 forms and formats that are good for professionals but also for the public in general well um the 
Manual Point One uh, has now been published in book form. And so Roger Smith took the lead on that. And uh, so that book you can buy now, uh, Florida's Lost Galleon. And uh, so that, that's an excellent publication uh, with chapters from all of us who worked on the first wreck and um, other people that came in later to you know, work for the, the history, John Worth in particular. Um, and so we really took everything we knew about the first wreck and, and put it into that volume. Uh, we've made many conference pre presentations as well and all that. Um, we published articles on uh, what we're finding from Emmanuel Point Two, which could certainly lead to you know, the second book in this series. And then, you know, we're already at the point where we could start to present about uh, Emmanuel Point Three, which may well have been presented at NASAL. Um, we do that, um, but there's been more work probably just in the form of um, master's theses. And so um, students, you know, they'll pick, you know, uh, an area like they're looking at uh, artifacts from um, Mesoamerican artifacts, just those to go into real detail on those are the final assemblage or the um, floral assemblage. And so there's those were theses that have been produced already are just in-depth looks at the ceramics that we're finding. Um, so tremendous, you know, amount of research goes into it and, and provides that source for that, which is really good. Um, I have a science background. Uh, so, um, I, I don't, I'm the chair of the anthropology department and uh, my doctorate's in uh, anthropology, but from the Texas A&M Nautical Archaeology Program. And, uh, but I've always uh, thought, I think, like a scientist and try to apply what I learned there. And so um, the, my own particular research is working with the artifacts, but, you know, what, what can they tell us? And so doing things uh, to elucidate that, you know, Right now, I'm working with um, the, trying to isolate ancient DNA from some of these things, which I think is, uh, you know, a fascinating. To really talking about some of the early livestock that was brought over as part of the Columbian Exchange, and then you know the paper that I was going to present at NASAL relates to the mercury that we found on all three of the wrecks so far. But we've done isotope studies, we've done neutron activation analysis. Um, we're doing uh, a good bit of work with the, the wood itself. We brought over a, a dendrochronologist from Wales, from Trinity St. David in Wales, to uh, help us sample the wreck to really get an idea of, um, you know, what type of wood is it. And, uh, but that's part of a bigger study, which really is looking at uh, 16th century European forestry, pro uh, the process for that, the practices. Um, it, it's also, because we know the age of the ships, we can take the ship timbers and they're taking tiny wood samples from each ring and they do carbon-14 on that. And by doing so, that helps to calibrate the world's radiocarbon scale. So if we get a C14 day today, you know, we may be plus or minus 50 years, something like that. But with enough work like this, we may be able to say, you know, plus or minus five years. So that's, you know, other work that's happened, you know, in collaboration with universities overseas. 
I, I think first off, we're going to have a batch of your grad students on that we've already got them booked to come on. So we're looking forward to having a little bit more in-depth discussion on each of those little subtopics you talked about. There's some really interesting ones. Again, I go back to that schedule we had for that Friday of uh, the NASO conference, and it was going to be an all-day event with you chairing a panel. I know Greg uh, uh, Cook was going to do one, and a whole batch of other panels on that. So I'm really looking forward to. It. I'm really, I, I'm really hoping that next year, if we everything gets going and we're back in Pensacola in May, we get to even hear more uh, in-depth analysis of, of what's going on there. Uh, talking about the science aspect, again, I, I think that's absolutely fascinating. I, I think all too often as, as a historian, we tend to think that every primary, you know, any source has to be a piece of paper with someone's written something on it in the past. But I, I think your element of looking at science and really being able to look at the, the breakdown and understand things like the DNA passage of, of, of material is, is so important. I was wondering if you could go a little bit more on that. You talked about the cat, you talked about the chicken. I, there's a joke in there somewhere about the chicken coming to America, but I, I'll avoid that if I can. Uh, but why is that so important for understanding uh, this event? Because again, this is, this is 1559. This is you know, 70 years before the English come over and settle North America. But here we're seeing the first introduction, at least we know of, in, into the North American area of European culture in a large measure. And, and why is that so important for us to understand today? Well, I think it's important um, because it, it tells us things we don't always expect sometimes. Um, for instance, uh, the cat was surprising. Um, we recovered uh, final material in the builds of the ship and the organic preservation's great. So we have these things. Um, we have a, uh, a colleague, Kathy Parker, she does all the final analysis for us. And so we'll give, give her these specimens that we found and then she'll tell us these wonderful things sometimes, you know, that surprises, you know, we, we really expect to find chicken, pig, and sheep, and goat, and things like that. Okay, well, you can't differentiate sheep and goat easily from just the final specimens, they're too close. And so, well, I want to know, are they sheep or are they goat? Which ones were they utilizing? And so we can do that with DNA though. So that's one of the things we're doing. Another thing we're doing with DNA is, this is a um, thesis topic for one of my grad students, Cassandra Sadler. Um, I'm kind of jealous of it because I really liked uh, the idea, but um, she took, she's looking at olive jars, and so we have olive jars with the, the big storage jars that they carry things in. And historically, as you mentioned, you know, in the documents, they carried wine, and they carried water, and honey, and milk, and things like that. But, you know, what did they really carry in them for that? So the ones that carried liquids, they coated the insides with a resin called Pez. It's, it's pine pitch is what it is. And they sealed them up with that, and otherwise the vessel would be too porous, and it would eventually your liquids would kind of evaporate out. So she took um, resin samples, the PEZ, from three of these uh, odd jar shards, from each one from each different wreck, and we sent those off for pollen analysis to look, you know, if it was wine, maybe we could find grape pollen and be able to say, you know, this is what it carried. Well. Um, we found pine pollen, which isn't a surprise, but in one of them we found lots and lots of insect type pollen, pollen that insects would, would have carried, not windborne pollen. Okay, well then that suggests that the vessel uh, was full of honey. 
is where all that pollen came from. So now we've taken that, you know, a step further, we're taking, we're scraping the inside walls of the olive jars, we're also taking some of that same PEZ, and we're looking for DNA. And so we're specifically trying to, to find out if we can find great DNA uh, inside these things to say, yes, that they were carrying wine in these things or vinegar, something like that. Um, you know, or if we can isolate other types of DNA, maybe it'll tell us they were carrying different things. So we're not the first group to do that, but our preservation's really good. So we're trying that right now. Um, but really to get an idea of, you know, what type, what did these cattle look like? You know, the cattle probably came from Spain, but what did they look like? Um, the sheep or the goat, um, they were introduced to this world. How have they changed from today? Um, you know, people are interested in that, um, just the, uh, evolution of you know how the animals been adapted by man and such to see what these early ones were like the chicken story is fun because it's been somewhat controversial you know there's been the story that you know chickens were in polynesia and um, brought that way and then you know their people you know said that the dates were wrong that there was what they called the old carbon effect because they were feeding them uh, marine products and so marine products have old carbon in them which throws off the dates and different things like that and so but if you you know look at it we these chicken bones um, we can't there aren't any in North America that are earlier than these the ones from our shipwrecks right now that actually have the bones to try to do that we've isolated DNA right now and so the next thing is then to sequence it, and to, you know, to match up the pieces and to see how they correspond to other chicken samples to get an idea of, you know, were they scrawny chickens or, you know, what were they really like? Uh, the cat story uh, is one of mine I like a lot. Um, Mary Rose has a dog. Uh, there's a ship in England called Catwater Wreck, which has a dog. Dogs are actually better ratters Okay, so cats weren't well thought of in the 16th century. So the whole idea that there's cat on board is kind of interesting. You, know, you think, well, maybe the captain liked cats and stuff. You know, the church frowned on cats because they were associated with uh, religious, you know, views that, uh, you know, the Celtic peoples had cats and the Egyptians worshipped cats. And so the cats weren't good things. And in fact, in the 16th century, you could license a dog, but you couldn't license a cat. So I want to know, okay, is it a male or a female? Is it a white cat, a black cat, if we can determine the color from, you know, its genetic makeup and things like that. Um, what, you know, what size is it? There certainly was a main variety of cats then as there is today, but I want to know, you know, what this cat looked like. Now, what was the cat on board for? You know, there's other possibilities there too. You know, what was it brought on board to help? control rats was it a pet or did they eat it because <laughs> we've actually have a recipe from 1560 on roasted cat and how to cook it so um, I, I'm you know fond of cats myself so I'm kind of hoping it was just the ship's mascot <laughs> but it tells us more about you know people and what life was really like to you know to give that a clearer picture of that no I just what I was 
I think that personal aspect you're, you're talking about is, is so important. I, I tell you, I was, I was joking about when you laughing when you were talking about Cassandra's presentation, because I remember reading that, that title, and I just want to read her title real quick, Spain's Golden Tupperware, Historical Analysis of Iberian Pez Production and Atlantic Trade in, in the 16th Century. And, and it really goes to the idea that the title is very important in your paper, too, I think. I think that really captivated me. I was really interested in that. I'm glad you explained what Pez was, because I was pretty sure it wasn't the candy. Uh, so uh, I'm glad we got that clarification out there. Uh, I, I think the the cat story is is always great because I, I think one of the things that we try to do in in understanding the past is also personalize it. What was it like for the common person, the sailor, the the, the individual there? And I think that's such an important aspect, especially in, that I think anthropology does so much better than history does. Sometimes we tend to fixate on 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 the big man, the the, the major figure in, in in person, whereas anthropology tries to talk about that that society in general, which I think is 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 so important. And and I want to ask you kind of a societal question here with with this expedition. You know, we have a mindset of what Spanish conquistadors look like. You know, was this a Spanish conquistador in the like of a Pizarro and 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 a, a Aztec? view or is this a much different aspect and maybe we don't understand Spain's colonization of the new world as well as we thought we did? I think we could help answer um, some of that. Um, we, we, we found leather shoes, uh, leather shoe fragments anyway, so we can talk some, uh, you know, a little bit about some of the clothing. On the land side, they found um, rivets that were probably associated with um, helmets um, that they wore, um, buckles and things. And so um, the land side, the organic preservation is terrible. So we don't find uh, cloth fragments too much. We have found uh, little tiny remnants of gold thread so that people would weave into their clothing though. And so there were, different societal members there for sure. And, you know, some people obviously were being a more noble than other people as well. Um, John Worth is really, you know, looking at um, things about how they laid out the site as he gets more and more into the, you know, directing that research, you know, on the colony site, the way the buildings, you know, he may have identified the house that belonged to the treasurer because they found a um, scale weight that would really only belong to that man himself um, to mark that. And so we're, we're going to be able to kind of look at how things were laid out in the village, I think, eventually, which is going to tell more of that social hierarchy as well. Um, this one's tough. Um, you know, they were there for two years, but two years, they, you know, they could have really made an impression onto the, to the land it's, itself that, you know, we're going to be able to see those things. So, um, great research and, you know, we work with students, you know, trying to figure out, okay, you know, you need a thesis topic and, you know, maybe, you know, you want to think about this aspect of it. And, um, uh, see what, you know, you can find, you know, they're going to tell us things that we haven't thought about too. That's what I like about, you know, the students sometimes they get excited and they'll come in your office and they go, look what I just found. You know, that's really cool. 
Well, now you say that, I want to broach broach over to that because I think that's a a great topic to talk about. Uh, You know, again, you were talking about bringing undergrads and graduate students involved into this research. We're talking about multidisciplinary cross-disciplines aspect. And and I I really want to talk about that a little bit because why is this so important to get more and more students involved in and and why this is such an important topic? You know, today we we tend to focus on pushing everybody in, into, into STEM, which is, which is great. It's fantastic. But why is it so important for us to really capture history, capture the anthropology, capture the archaeology of, of sites like these? And, and, and what is, are you doing at West Florida in particularly to really encourage students uh, to, to embark in, in, in these type of careers and, and areas? Because it sounds like you guys are doing a fantastic job in recruiting and, and getting students involved in it. But why is it so important for the larger discipline across the board? Well, it you know it strengthens our discipline. It um, they they can add to it. We can't do it all, and so you know they're the backbone of the research that we do. You know through the university because you know they're the manpower on the 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 excavations. You know it's it's just Greg Cook and I. We couldn't excavate a ship by ourselves. We've been working together you know forever on these ships but you know we use the students and it, it gives them the training you know for them you know they they want a career uh, we have a good track record of getting students employed in the field once they graduate um, we give them lots of hands-on field experience for that um, we're really uh, in the last couple of years trying to engage more undergraduate research as well uh, to get those students, uh, you know, involved in not just in the classroom but outside research, we have a student scholar symposium every spring. Now, uh, the students uh, present. We send students to INCUR, the National Council for Undergraduate Research, um, and they presented on topics related to this as well. And, and so it helps the discipline and. Uh, People are fascinated by it. I mean, you know, there's good shows and bad shows out there, but it, you know, people, you know, I can't tell you, I'm sure it's happened, you know, to you too, but um, you know, you meet someone and then they ask you what you do and then they go, you know, I always wanted to do that. I just never did. And so, you know, a lot of people uh, feel that way and they have that interest. And so it's the story, you know, um, you know, and, and we learn from the past and, you know, we find out mistakes and we try not to repeat them. Uh, you know, today, you know, historians are telling us a lot about the 1918 pandemic, you know, that's helping, I hope it's helping us today with the pandemic, you know, that we're currently facing. But, uh, you know, it, it, you know, raises us as a society to do this type of research. So, and uh, there's different aspects. People like different parts of it. No, I, I think that's exactly true. And that's one of the appeals, I think, of cross-disciplinary programs like you have right there, where you can focus on a particular aspect. You may have one person who really likes to do the diving, the hands-on type approach, whereas others more like the paperwork background record searching or more, more like the artifacts and, and what the different elements of the artifacts do. And I think that sounds like a, a great element you have there. Obviously, right now, we're in the midst of... of, of I don't want to say attacks on history, but we're, we're, we're very cognizant of our history and, and putting our history into context 
And and I was wondering your your perspective on that too. I think I think I think now, especially people in our profession, so much it's it's really important that we assist and tell people, you know, this is the historical context. Because unfortunately, sometimes sometimes history and and our history is is canned into small little bite sized chunks that are being you know manifested in statues and imagery right now. So I'm wondering about your perspective on on what's our long-term goal should be doing in in the profession that that we have chosen for ourselves. I think um, different ways is really uh, you know this one specialized you know report paper you know may not have that great a you know, an influence, but when you can bring together, uh, you know, a synthesis of the work, then, you know, it's much better. Uh, as you were talking, I was just thinking about, we've had um, a couple conferences, you know, we're, like you mentioned in NASAL, where everybody comes together and it gives that broader picture of what we're doing. We've presented this way at um, SHA before, Society for Historical Archaeology, where we'll have a an all day or all morning session and, you know, be able to to put those papers out in a in a manner that you know paints that whole picture, I think that's really what we need to be doing is making sure that we we try to give the more complete story to the general public than you know just the real specific ones. Sometimes, you know, th this is important. Uh, you know, Pensacola. I mean, a lot of people they they've never heard of Luna. They didn't know the Spanish attempted, you know, a settlement attempt in 1559, but it's their own history and, uh, you know, Florida's history. And, uh, you know, they need to be, you know, it needs to be taught. I grew up in Missouri. You know, I never knew the Spanish came to the Florida in the 1500s. You know, I was taught about Jamestown and the English colonists, but that's not the whole story by any means. And so, you know, we want to pay tribute to this early history and, and um, all you know elements of it well i think that's such a, a big point you hit on there john especially the the interdisciplinary aspect and and one of the things that i think naso does very well is it brings together groups not just historians not just archaeologists but you know and, and again try to synthesize that material into something that's usable that uses multiple sources to really produce history that's good for professionals but also for the general public in some ways too to educate them because like you said you know, I teach an American history course. I was just doing some grading just before this and, and, you know, try to break that mold of, of, you know, the United States starts on the East coast and moves forever westward, you know, really is not the true imagery of, of what we should be portraying to them. We need to be talking about a history that's much more complex, much more in depth. The problem with complex is it gets too complicated. And so we get, need to still make it understandable. And I think when you have aspects like you're doing with your research down there with Luna, you open that up to people to really, okay, you don't need to understand the entire picture, but let me show you one piece that may be of interest to you. And let's zoom in on that and be able to study that. John, I was gonna take a break here for just one second. Uh, is there anything else in particular you want to cover or, or discuss? We can go ahead and, and, and do that right now if you like. Um, well, I think we've talked about, uh, you know, the, the program and all that works really well. Um, I didn't know I I was going to present a, a you know actually a specific paper at NASAL. I've presented at NASAL uh, before. I always en enjoy the the conference and uh, uh, James Bradford you know has been a long time member there. He was on my dissertation committee, 
and uh, Harold Langley I know because my dissertation involved the gunboat Philadelphia up in Lake Champlain. But, um, you know, uh, when we worked on the, the first shipwreck, uh, the one that was found in 1992, uh, Emanuel Point One, uh, we found little drops of mercury and they were sticking to some of the iron concretions because they like to bind uh, iron and other metals and things like that. These little tiny drops and we'd see them. And then we were working in the stern of the ship. And uh, so in an area, it really narrows down and there's the Spanish use what are called wireframes to uh, finish that area out. And uh, we had a dredge hose that was four inch diameter, but it was too big to really fit between the frames comfortably. And uh, so we replaced the dredge hose with uh, a three inch dredge hose that worked there. And the new one happened to be clear well, James Spirek, uh, a former ECU grad, uh, uh, Jim was working down there and then he saw mercury in these sediments. And then as he swam over the hose that was lying on the seabed, he could see mercury was pooled inside there. So I went down and then um, with the help of another diver named Chuck, we manhandled this hose underwater and were able to capture it all into a Tupperware container. Well, ultimately, we had seven pounds of mercury, uh, 250 milliliters wow. in that. So, you know, thought of time, well, mercury is used in the amalgamation of gold. And so we thought, well, that's what it, you know, it's going to be for. But if you look at the dates of all this, you find out they weren't really, they weren't really doing it. It was close to the time period, but just a little too early for that patio process to happen. Okay. So then, you know, what's the mercury being used for? Well, then on the second Emanuel Point ship, we found, also found more droplets of mercury in places on it. And then on the third ship, even though we've only excavated, you know, a small area of that one, we found an area with, with droplets of mercury on that one as well. So all three ships had it. What were they using it for? And so, you know, to then start looking at the historical sources, it's used, you know, uh, for medical reasons and specifically to treat syphilis. And so I wanted to know, well, is it mercury from the new world? Is it mercury from the old world? We had earlier student of mine, Andrew Marr, he looked at lead, the lead strips on the outside of the hull and did, uh, had isotopic analysis done. He was able to confirm that every strip of lead came from the same mine in Spain. <laughs> And so I thought, well, we'll do something similar with our mercury. Well, it turned out to be this incredible challenge because chemists don't want to put mercury into these chambers and it's a whole long story and all that. But it's almost undoubtedly was produced in the Almaden mines of Spain. And so, you know, I looked into how was it produced and how was it transported and all these things, which, you know, I found interesting and all that. Then more importantly, okay, what was it used for? Well, it's for medical, primarily to treat syphilis. Okay, so how was it administered? And so, you know, I found early accounts where they were putting people in basically kilns where they would heat up mercury and then let the person sit in there with the vapor to shroud them, which is just horrible. And then, but more commonly, it was, it was uh, applied in the form of an unguent. 
And uh, so then uh, John Worth found recipes uh, that he shared with me of how they took the mercury and primarily they mixed it with pig lard and then it was spread like a salve over various parts of the body and uh, to do that. And, uh, but you know, just the history of how they treated syphilis at the time. Um, different recipes, there was, uh, there's one recipe for the rich and that one has rose petals and chamomile in it. So it must have smelled better. But, uh, you know, just that. And then the idea eventually, they learned how toxic mercury was. And even the physicians were advising to let the patient apply it himself. And then realizing they're killing more people with the mercury than were being killed by syphilis. And then eventually how syphilis was uh, eventually put to rest uh, by Paul Ehrlich when he invented salverson, which was an arsenic compound, and then eventually penicillin. But I thought, you know, that's one of those, you know, more focused studies. But it's a, it's a study that, you know, people, general public, you know, would find interesting as well. And that was going to be my topic at NASAL this year. Uh, confirms the suspicions of sailors just, just being problems wherever they go, having been a sailor for seven years myself. So it, it, it doesn't sound too unusual for these sailors to be spreading a disease into the new world. Well, John, I want to first. I want to thank you for for taking the time to come on. Uh, this has been great. Uh, you've been able to cover a, a breadth of topics in here that are just amazing. And one of the things that's really piqued my interest is to hear from other West Florida students and 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 professors who are going to present down there. It really makes me want our conference to definitely go on next year. So I want to take. Uh, Take a moment, I wanna thank uh, John Bratton for joining us for our NASO video podcast. We'll have links to John's work and a lot of the references he had in our show notes. Uh, if you liked our video and our podcast, be sure to click on like on YouTube and give it five stars on your podcast provider. Please subscribe to our channel to receive updates as we continue to interview maritime and historians and archeologists and anthropologists. Uh, you can follow NASO on Facebook or on Twitter at NASO underscore history. The best way to follow NASO is to become a member. Uh, as such, you receive our newsletter, our quarterly journal, The Northern Mariner, which we publish jointly with the Canadian Nautical Research Society. You can go to www.naso.org and click on membership to join. Again, I want to thank John Bratton for joining us today from his home in Alabama, where he's usually working hard in Florida and Pensacola. Uh, we want to thank his uh, wife for listening to an Alabama fan uh, talk for this long, and especially for the dogs to be nice and uh, uh, work with us in this today's broadcast. And until our next talk, Keep sailing.